Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Storenagel. I, I grew up in church. I know that's not the case for, for everyone, probably not for everyone here either, but I grew up in church, uh, and I grew up going to church camps. I don't know if you grew up in church or if church camps was a thing in the tradition that you grew up in, uh, but the church that I grew up in had a lot of church camps, a lot of them. They had all sorts of, of camps. Some were like tents and very simple. Some were dorms and the whole package. Some were for families. Some were for children. But of course, the highlight of my growing years were the youth camps when I was a teenager. And I would go to so many of those. We were there all the time. At some point, I was leading them, so I was there all the time. And there was one thing. There was one thing that every single youth church camp needed to have. And that was bonfire night. Bonfire night. If we hadn't a bonfire night, we hadn't really been to camp. Not really. And they would be complaining. And it wasn't just about lighting a bonfire. But you could do that in your yard, I guess. No, it was a whole package. It was a whole thing. So we would huddle around the fire on Saturday night. If it was a weekend, it was necessarily Saturday night. We would huddle around the fire. If it was chilly, I'm from the south of Brazil, so it can be a bit chilly. So if it was chilly, you might bring some blankets or something. And that was not because we were particularly afraid of getting cold. No, that was a flirting technique, right? So you take a blanket, so you could offer the blanket to that girl that you're into, and maybe you're lucky that you can actually get to share it smooth, right? That's how you, how you do it. And then it was always the cool kid that knew how to play the guitar without the chord sheets, would bring the guitar and play. Uh, or if that wasn't the case, we didn't always have that, then the guitarist would get a sidekick, right? Which was the sound guy with the flashlight. <laughs> so this poor sound guy never got a chance with that whole blanket move. And there would be music, right? Would play. The worship songs would eventually get more, more slow going or more moving. And then someone would give a testimony or a small Bible reflection, a story from their lives, a story from the Bible. And invariably, some people would cry. And more than a few kids would come to sort of the middle of the circle, closer to the fire, and someone would pray for them as they committed or recommitted their lives to Jesus Christ and to the Christian faith. And then everybody would hug each other, and eventually we would head back, because we're Brazilians, we do that, we hug each other. Uh, and then we would head back to the dorms and back to other random teenager stuff, like, I don't know, eating Cheetos and making fart jokes or whatever it was. Every single time. I would go to like four of these a year, right? These camps a year. Every single time. Bonfire, songs, word, crying, praying, hugging, Cheetos. Every single time. And the bonfire 
thing was surely not exclusive to, to our church. Even, even as I told the story here, it was obvious that some of you knew exactly what I was talking about. As soon as I said bonfire, some of you knew exactly what I was talking about. This is one version of a wider phenomena uh, known in some Christian traditions as an altar call. And the name comes from its most common expression, which is in the context of a big Christian event or a Sunday service, after a preaching or some sort of call to repentance and commitment of faith, people are challenged or encouraged to walk up to the altar and be prayed for. It's meant both as a personal and a public expression of commitment to the Christian faith. And I know for some here, because OIC is such a diverse congregation, right? So we have people from so many different traditions. For some of you here, maybe this all sounds really weird and unfamiliar. But in many, in many Christian traditions, in many parts of the world, this was and this is a thing. And you wouldn't go once. Some kids, you know, been there, done that, would go regularly to the altar, whether it was a bonfire or, or the front of a church. It's almost like joining the church was like getting a gym membership. Right? You're stuck to this institution for life. And once in a while, you have to show up to, you know, not feel guilty about it. Well, this week, as I read on in the letter of James, we have been spending time with the letter of James, one of the letters in the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures that were written after Jesus and which we have in our Bibles. And we've been spending some time with the letter of James. And as I spent time with the letter of James this week and with the text that we had today, I had an image in my head. And the image that I had in my head is James is at the altar, and as people heed the altar call and come, he's shoving them out of there. He's sending them away. He's sending them away, and he's screaming, get out of here. Get out of here. James is a bit confusing sometimes, but he's not subtle. I want to read with you our text for today. And then I, te- then I can tell you why I had this image. And the text is in the letter of James, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 13 to the verse 10 of chapter 4. And I'm reading from the NRSV. Yeah. And it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceful, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As I said, James can be a bit confusing. Sometimes it seems like he's just connecting thoughts more or less randomly, and the text is just a bunch of bits and pieces. And it's not an uncommon thing when you're studying a Bible text and you have biblical commentators that have written about this text. It's not an uncommon thing that they will disagree about sort of the thematic structure of a, of a text. But in the case of James, they vary significantly more than usual. All the commentators are like, no, it's this, it's that, it's that other. As I shifted, like, sifted through this and tried to make sense of it, the one that seemed most persuading to me was, was a scholar called L.T. Johnson, and he argues that this section that we just read, that it belongs together while others sort of split it, and that it is essentially a call to conversion, a call to repentance, a call to turning. I would call it that, a call to repentance or metanoia, which is a Greek term often translated as, as conversion, but that denotes taking a full about turn of direction. Like the sense is the same. And now perhaps you're scratching your head and thinking, but isn't that kind of like an altar call? <laughs> a call to repentance? A call to conversion? So why did I picture James kicking people away from the altar and saying, get out of here? Well, whenever we speak of repentance, whenever we speak of metanoia, of this turning around, it is the most reasonable question to ask, well, turn around from what? Repent from what? And to answer that, we need to follow the flow of James' argumentation in his, in his letter, and, and we need to heed the use that he does of several different rhetorical devices that were actually not at all uncommon at this time. And if you've been following this series, you may notice that we brought that up a couple of times. You had orators, you had te moral teachers that were common in the Greek and the Roman world, and they used these, these different strategies, rhetoric strategies. And James is also engaging with those in many different ways. And the text opens up with this rhetorical question which James used a lot, by the way. You know, he makes a question and he answers it himself. Who is wise and understanding among you? And he answers with the charge. Show by your good life that your works are done with the gentleness born of wisdom. And what follows after this is the bulk of this section in which James is in effect revealing the nature and the consequences of a life that is not lived with gentleness born of wisdom, 
which in a couple of verses he will call a wisdom from above, but that is lived rather with what he then calls an earthly, unspiritual, and devilish wisdom. Now, we can very easily get hooked up with these terms, which are not only tricky in terms of translation from the original Greek, but they also kind of sound outdated and a bit culty. You go around calling things demonic, you're like, what is that? But I believe it is the next verse that holds perhaps the best key for understanding what James is wanting to uncover and reveal and bring to the light so that we may perceive it and turn away from it. What he is in effect calling us to repent from and turn away from, metanoia style. And the verse is verse 16 that says, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. James employs a number of rhetorical contrasts and then this sequence of, of questions and answers similar to the one he begins with. And throughout that whole argumentation, he is making use of a commonplace theme that was common to orators and moral teachers of the Greek and the Roman world, and that's technically called a, a topos. That's the nerd word for it. And the topos that he is riffing on here is the topos of envy. That's a theme that was sort of established in, in the teachings, and people knew some references to it. And he is exploring this theme of envy. A kind of sorrow that is experienced simply because another has something. That's how the ancient moral teachers define envy, according to Johnson. A kind of sorrow that is experienced simply because another has something. So James asks, those conflicts and disputes among you, you're bickering, you're fighting, you're bringing each other to the courts. Where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings or desires that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And we've already seen before how James goes strong on the words, right? And how within that word murder, he he's, has a world of intentions and movements that lead to death. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. Envy here is much more than a, a nagging feeling of desire for something. It is a desire that is nested, that is resting on, or is nested and, and, and surrounded by an understanding of the world as a place in which that which is needed or that which is desired must be taken and claimed because it can only belong to the one or the other. Sounds familiar? A logic of a world of limited resources in which I must claim my share at the expense of the other. Now again, we need to be careful here, and I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, because we know that we do, in fact, live in a world of limited resources, in a material sense. 
Right? One of the biggest challenges of our time is precisely coming to terms with the consequences of us trying to draw creation to its resources, to its limits and beyond. It's one of the big, big, big questions. Apparently, you push too far, the planet starts breaking, and we're going to have to deal with that. James does, in a sense, contrast this resource-scarce, this resource-lacking world with a vision of abundance. But it is not an abundance of everything that one's heart might desire. Because that would still be operating on the logic of envy, of feeling entitled to everything we want. No, what James is talking about is an abundance that comes from rewiring our desires towards a desire for a shared life of plenty. That's the shift, a shared life of plenty. And for James, this rewiring, this change of focus, this change of sensibility towards the world comes through coming close to God. To God who, James says, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And throughout the letter of James, you have an image of God who is overabundantly generous in contrast to a world who is greedy and full of envy. And James speaks of this closeness to God in terms of friendship. In terms of friendship. And in this text, this is seen through its negative. In other texts, it's positive, right? Friendship with the world. And our friendship is also a theme, right? A, a topos in Greek oratory. And the reason that I bring this up is because friendship had a much stronger connotation than it has in our common language nowadays. Friendship is sort of a light word for us. But in the ancient world, and around the turn of the millennia there in the first, second century, it was a highly discussed and prized relationship. It was regarded by influential thinkers of the ancient world like Epicurus, Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, you name it, as one of the highest forms of relationship. Friendships were a matter of identity, of self-understanding. Some of these authors speak of friendship as becoming one with the other in terms of your values, your desires, and how you share your resources. So when James argues that friendship with the world is enmity with God, he is not talking about the world in terms of, of the stuff and the created order but he's talking in terms of this system of desire and greed. His accusation of adulterers in verse 4, which sounds a bit out of the blue maybe for us, why is he calling them adulterers? What is this about? Well, but it comes in the tradition of the prophets, and it is less about sex than it is about taking by violence something that was desired by envy. The best biblical image for this, think about David. David taking Bathsheba because he was a powerful man who happened to see her and desire her. And what we have is a rape that is way too often described as David's instance of adultery. 
Adultery is way too mild a word, a word for what David did there. For James, the abundant contrast for this world of envy is best expressed in verse 18 when he says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So for James to be a friend with God, which is an expression he used elsewhere in the letter, is to give oneself over to grace and to commit one's identity to the pursue of mercy, the pursue of righteousness, the pursue of a shared table of plenty. So why is James kicking people away from the altar? Why is James kicking people away from the altar? Because what is being worshipped on the altar, says James, James, is all too often not the God of grace and abundance, but our own greedy selves. What is being worshipped on the altar is all too often not the God of grace, but our greedy selves. So James is calling us to turn our backs on the idolatry of the self. It is not the same thing as on the self. He's not talking about not loving who you are. He's talking about the idolatry of the self. It is expressed, this idolatry, in envy and in greed. It is expressed in the injustice of the world and the ways in which we allow ourselves to take part in it because we get something out of it. It is expressed in our unwillingness to forgive because we'd rather be in the right. It, it expresses in our inability and our unwillingness to yield, that is to listen to the other voices. It is also expressed, James argues throughout his letter, in religious terms. It's also expressed in religious terms when our coming to the altar is, a, is about us, right? It's about, it's about saving our ass from some vision of hell or ensuring our moral standing over and above whoever else may be. When James takes an aim at prayer, it's like in the middle of this, is, this is what he's taking aim at. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And this particular translation in RCV helps us out because it fleshes out the meaning to help avoid a misunderstanding of that term wrongly. You ask wrongly because it's actually better translated as you ask wickedly. And asking wickedly is asking on the logic of envy and self-centered desire. So this is not about praying wrong, as if we're using the wrong technique and that's why we don't get it. We're not saying the right words or we're not being polite enough with God. This is about the kind of desires we are bringing before God and how much we're allowing our hearts to be attuned in prayer to the heart of God and His willingness to share how much we come to prayer in a stand of, of learning and intimacy or of requesting and demanding. Asking wickedly is asking on the logic of envy and self-centered desire. Or perhaps I should put it 
even more clearly. It is asking on the logic of desire centered on the self at the expense of the other. At that point, we are no longer talking with God in friendship. We're rather talking to ourselves and hoping that God can be our power broker. And James says, God doesn't buy into that. So James says, get out of here. Get out of here. Walk away from this altar where you worship yourself and where you feed on envy. And where that which you sacrifice is everybody else. Walk away. Because these are things that we don't relearn and that we don't heal from at the altar. These are things that the Spirit teaches us and shapes us as we go to the tables, as we meet the community. These are the ways in which God reshapes our heart as we meet the other, as we learn the practice of forgiveness, as we learn the practice of repentance, as we learn the practice of generosity over greed, as we learn to live with some lack so that others may have more, as we learn the crafted sensibility towards the actual needs of others. So James' call is a call to repentance. It is a call to metanoia. It is a call to change course. We're uncomfortable with those calls. But we need them. We need them. Any honest look into our own souls and the world around us will let us know that we need them. We need repentance. We need metanoia. We need a turn of direction that turns us towards each other. Towards each other in friendship with the God that is creator, spirit, and son incarnate. That allows our hope to be fleshed out in our relationship with each other. We need this. The world needs this. We need it. When I think about my teenage years and all those, all those altar calls... There was some stuff that wasn't really healthy there. I probably went to the altar a few too many times, and I probably have to work that out with the therapist. But there was something there that I do cherish to this day, and that was community. Given all the stuff, you know, I had, I had community. I had friends around me as I was growing up, and I think I was extremely privileged in that sense. Because it's tough, right? It's tough to navigate the world of desires and envies as a teenager. And I'm really grateful that I had a community around me that with all its issues taught me to ground my faith and practice in community. That after that whole thing, we were back in the room and in the middle of our fart jokes and Cheetos or whatever you do as a teenager, we were learning to have each other back and to pray for each other and to care and to, you know, know what's going on. And these things were so deeply intertwined. And as I grew, I had to sort that stuff up. 
But you know what? It's still tough to navigate that world, isn't it? Can pretend that we grew up and now we have it together. It's hard. We live in one of the wealthiest countries of the world. It's hard not to let our measure sort of get higher and higher and start thinking that we need stuff we don't really think, we don't really need. We live in extremely individualized lives and it's easy to think that that's okay and forget how to hear each other. How to love each other. It's hard to navigate the ways in which greed and envy takes hold of our hearts and expression in our lives. And in this world, which is where we get to be and where we get to live and where we get to try to live as Christians, it makes an immense difference to have a community that teaches us to love and to resist envy and to resist greed that calls us to repentance and conversation and make these embodied practices. Now, I'll be honest with you, church is a mess. I've been working with church for decades. It's a mess. But there's something there, right? Can we do this for each other? Can we keep each other challenged? Can we invite each other towards repentance? Can we teach each other to love? Can we be the place where our heart is shaped a bit closer to the way in which God's heart loves the world, in which God gives an abundance of grace to the humble, and yes, resists the greedy, the envious, because they sow death, and God is God of life. So James is saying, we gotta, we gotta keep on doing it. And the place we do it is in the community, is in the world. If coming to the altar helps us do that, great. But we need to go. We need to go. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't say, show by your good life that your works are done by doing everything right. No, by gentleness born of wisdom. By leaning in to the grace of God and letting it shape us in the context of our community of faith. That's the task. And we all know it isn't easy. But can we face it together? We might just have a better chance. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you and towards you and towards your neighbor and your neighbor. May the Lord turn his face towards you in the days in which you struggle and the days in which you rejoice in the days in which you take and need to repent and in the days in which you share and give. That in all of them, he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, and in that way, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.